Thanks for tuning in today. You're listening to the official podcast of First Alliance Church in Great Falls, Montana, creating passionate followers of Christ. Today's message is from lead pastor John Reese. In his book entitled With, Sky Jethany uh, talks about wrong ways that Christians relate to God. He talked about four mistaken postures that believers can take. And three of these four are life under God, which refers to people who kind of think of God like a lawgiver only. Uh, This God is often disappointed with us. We never really measure up. He constantly sees and judges our failures, and we're always trying to appease this God. Then there's life from God, which refers to people who think primarily of him as a gift giver, one who uh, smooths out our road and, and gives abundantly. So if we ask in faith, and this God serves us instead of us serving him. And then there's life for God. Here we envision God like kind of a mission commander who assigns tasks to us to perform. He's a God who's always evaluating us in light of the mission. He's pleased with us when we achieve the goals he set for us. At this point in Romans, however, Paul sees the faith differently, not as life under, from, or for God, but life with God. That's what we're really going to be looking at in chapters 5 through 8 through the book of Romans. Paul tells us, you know, in chapters 3 and 4, that since we were justified by faith, in chapter 5, he tells us we now have peace with God. Chapter 6, he'll talk about us being united with him. In chapter 6 also, he talks about we live with him in verse 8 of chapter 6. And then in chapter 8, verse 16, we are heirs of God, fellow heirs of Christ. And so Romans chapter 5 is a point where he moves from teaching the doctrine of justification by faith to talking about its consequences. Chapter 5 of Romans really tells us, the first part of this chapter at least, tells us about the riches that we now have in Christ or the benefits we inherited because we were accepted by God. And here Paul is answering a question that people might be asking, and that is, what difference does all this make in our lives? And Paul answers that by listing five blessings that believers possess as a result of their justification. And so today I want to talk about justification by faith experienced, experienced in our lives. And we'll talk about how this doctrine benefits us. And I was just thinking, you know, it sounds almost like it was planned, but what an appropriate topic for Thanksgiving weekend, right? (laughs) In other words, we're going to talk about the things that we have to be thankful for. Well, in the first uh, verses of chapter 5, Paul starts out by saying, first of all, we have peace with God. Therefore, since we have been made right, In God's sight by faith, since we have been made right so we can experience God now, we have peace with God because of what our Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. Now, 
Peace with God should not be confused with the peace of God. The peace of God is what Paul talks about in Philippians 4, 7, where he, when he says, and, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God is that calm we have in the cares of the world. While we're going through the world with all the challenges that are being thrown at us, we still have peace in our heart because we have the peace of God. It's peace uh, that that uh, comes because of our relationship with God. It's peace in regard to the cares of the world. It's, it's subjective in nature. But peace with God, the peace that God talk, Paul talks about here, means that the battle between us and God is now over. Peace with God is peace with regard to God. It's an objective reality. Until salvation comes, there has been a war going on between us and God, a battle for control. And, and we not only break God's laws, but we assume that we have the authority to do so because it's our lives. In essence, we say, nobody can tell me what to do. And so when we finally lay down our arms and surrender to his will, the war is over and we are now at peace with him. Now, both the peace of God and peace with God are wonderful truths. But of the two, peace with God is even more wonderful. This, as I said, is the peace that comes when a war is over, when hostility has ceased. It's a peace that comes from two estranged parties coming together. We were changed from foes of God to friends of with God. It's the peace that comes when fences are coming down that have separated two groups. It's the peace that comes when one who has set himself in opposition to the purposes of another yields to that one. It's the peace of surrender, but unlike in war where you sometimes surrender to someone who wants to oppress you, in this case, surrender's not bad, for what we are conquered by here is a God who loves us deeply. We come to terms not with an oppressor, but a father. <laughs> We're reconciled not with a tyrant, but a one who wants to shepherd us and calls us his sheep. We discover not a judgmental master, but a savior. And you know, it's interesting Everybody I talk to who has made this decision in their life and has surrendered control of their life to God, almost everyone says the same thing to me. I don't know why it took me so long. You know, God's ready and waiting in love, but we can resist his control over us, and we do. We fight against it. We don't want God to be Lord of our lives. Frederick Buechner tells a tragic story that kind of illustrates the plight of contemporary man. It's the story of a 13-year-old boy who, in a fit of anger and depression, got a hold of a gun and fired it at his father. His father died, not right away, but soon after. And when the authorities asked the boy why he did it, he said, 
It's because he couldn't stand his father, because his father was telling him what to do, because he wanted his freedom, because his father demanded too much of him and he hated him. After he had been placed in a house of detention somewhere, a guard was walking by his corridor one night late and he heard sobs coming from the boy's room and he stopped to listen and the words he heard the boy crying in the night were, I want my father. <laughs> I want my father. And Beekner says that's the plight, the sad plight of the 21st century man. Man has tried to do away with the notion of God. They have not wanted to bring their life into conformity with God's plan. But this has left a terrible void in man's heart. And he cries out to, for God. Bertrand Russell, the well-known atheist philosopher who wrote the famous book, Why I'm Not a Christian, once said this. He says, at the center of me is always an eternally terrible pain, a curiously wild pain a searching for something beyond what this world contains. And, and in his writings, you see that at times he longed for God, but he refused to respond to his love. God wants to end the hostility with man. And so he devised a plan. He set his son to pay the price for the sins that separate us from him. And we're told that all who welcome Jesus as the Lord of their lives will be reborn spiritually and receive new life from God. If we accept his offer of love, the war is over. There's peace. On September 2nd, 1945, on the decks of the USS Missouri, General Douglas MacArthur spoke the first words of peace following the awful World War II, and he said this. He said, the guns are silent. The skies no longer rain death. The seas bear only commerce, and men everywhere walk upright in the sunlight. The entire world is quietly at peace. And after a period of war, that's a wonderful thing to experience. You know, as I watch our world and I see these war-torn countries, I often wonder, I don't know if you do this too, but I often wonder, what would it be like to be there? What would it be like to live in the Ukraine? What would it be like to live in Israel or Gaza or somewhere where, where wars are raging? There's so much unnecessary pain and suffering in these war-torn lands. And we cry out, we want peace. <laughs> you know, back in, during the Iraqi war, we had a, one of our alliance pastors in Baghdad, and he was an Iraqi but because he was a Christian, he, he was a target of religious persecution. And he said that each morning when he kissed his children goodbye before they got on the school bus, he did so not knowing if he would ever see them again. And I hear things like this and my heart breaks and I'm so thankful I live in Great Falls, Montana. And I wonder, why can't we just be at peace? We all long for peace. But as much as we want peace in our world with our fellow man, there's even a more important peace for us to have, and that is our peace with God. To end the hostility toward him, to surrender our lives to him, to be still and know that he is God, and to live in harmony with his plan for our lives. 
Did you ever have that experience when all of a sudden you realized the barrier was down between you and God and you were accepted in his presence? That's a wonderful moment. I'll never forget one of my experiences of that, my first experience of peace with God like that. I was a young man struggling with feelings of guilt for my rebellion against my parents and struggling against their values, and I was running from God and trying to make uh, carve out an identity for myself. But when I finally yielded to God and prayed for forgiveness... He gave me a peace that was unlike any that I had ever experienced before. And I can identify with what Ken Hughes said after his encounter with Jesus. He said this, he said, Now the sky seemed bluer, the grass seemed greener, and a great weight was lifted off my shoulders. And that's what it felt like for me. Peace with God means that we have been reconciled with him. There's no more hostility between us, no sin blocking our relationship. Peace with God is possible only because of the price that Jesus paid for our sins on his death on the cross. And so the first of these wonderful benefits we have as a result of our justification is peace with God. The second result of being made right with God is access to God. Access, if you think about it, is really a wonderful, wonderful thing. We are in Christ, therefore we are in a desirable position of favor with God, and as, as near and dear to God, we are as near and dear to God as his own precious son is to him. He even calls us his sons and daughters. We're not just acquaintances. Where peace talks about my standing with God, access speaks about my relationship as a result of that standing. And so in verse 2, he says, because of our faith, because we have trusted in Christ, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand. Or as the NIV puts it, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. This goes beyond just peace with God, which is the ending of hostility. Justification is not merely the removal of something negative, which is the hostility. It, It has a positive aspect, a relationship. Later in this passage, he will describe it as friendship with God. We're now God's friends. And with our friendship, new privileges come as a result of that. That means we can now go to God continually with our requests and problems and failures, and he hears us and he relates to us. A few generations ago, uh, a Bible scholar by the name of Donald Gray Barnhouse shared that When he was over in France, he was pastoring a small evangelical church in the French Alps, and once a week he would walk to the neighboring village for children's classes he was teaching, and he says, en route I would pass the local priest on a similar errand in the opposite direction. He said, over time, we became good friends, and we often stopped and visited together. He says, one day he asked me, why don't you pray to the saints? And I responded, why shouldn't we pray to the saints? 
And he jumped into a lengthy explanation of how to see the French president, a person would first have to go through one of the departments, like the Department of Agriculture or Finance or something, and start with a secretary there and get an appointment with one of the cabinet members who might succeed in opening the door to the president's office. And he smiled when he completed this explanation, thinking, you know, there, I've explained it. There's no rebuttal for that. But Dr. Barnhaus responded, but what if I was uh, the president's son? What if I lived in the same house he lived in? What if every day we would have breakfast together? What if I said goodbye to him when he went to work? And would, would I then start with the secretary of the assistant of the minister of finance to get access to my father? Do you really realize what access actually means? We have, because of our justification, been adopted as God's sons, our daughters, and, and now as a child of God, we have this open door to him. The temple curtain has been ripped in two. There's no barrier between us and God. Yeah. You know, at certain times, I, I find that I'm really busy and and, you know, I'll, I'll ask people around me to, to keep interruptions from coming. But if one of my sons calls me, I immediately stop what I'm doing to visit with them. And when I hear them on the other end of the line say, Hi, Dad, I don't care what I'm juggling at the moment. I, it can wait. My sons are an absolute priority to me. Now, now, take a father's feelings toward his children and multiply it many times over and you'll know what your heavenly father thinks about you. There is no voice that sounds sweeter to him than your voice. Nothing in the cosmos will keep him from giving you his full attention. That's why Jesus says when you start to pray, start our Father. <laughs> access is the result of justification. Through our access to the Father, we receive the assurance that he hears our prayers and the confidence of his help on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. A third result we have because we have been forgiven by God is Hope in experiencing the glory of God. Hope looks to the future. And it grows as you learn what God has in store for you. And Paul says in chapter 5, verse 2, the second half of the verse, we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. This is a definite anticipation of the day when we will possess the glory of being God's children. What John talks about when he says, dear friends, we are already God's children, but he has not yet shown us what we will be like when Christ appears, but we know that we will be like him for we will see him as he really is. That's the believer's hope. And it's not just a hopeful wish. It's a hope-filled certainty. We know it's true because this is what God has said. And the reason this benefit comes in third is because the more we experience peace with God and access to him as our father, the more desirous we are of the day when we will experience him face to face. 
Timothy Keller says this. He says, by itself, heaven can be abstract and unappetizing idea. But if you taste access with God and realize how intoxicating it is just to have a couple drops of his presence on your tongue, you will desire to drink from the fountainhead. That desire, focus, and joyous certainty of the future is what we call the hope of glory. If through access we have experienced the presence of God, there's nothing we want more than to be with him for eternity. Now, if you look at these three benefits of justification, the first three mentioned here uh, talk about the, the, the different aspects of salvation in the sense that they, they are in three tenses. In Christ, we have been freed from our past sins and brought into a position of peace with God. We are free in the presence to enjoy this relationship with God, access to God. And we will one day experience the freedom of life lived in the awesome presence of God. The, the fourth benefit of justification doesn't sound like it fits at all. It doesn't sound like a benefit. Fact is, it sounds like just the opposite. But the fourth benefit of our justification is that we have joy in tribulation. The fourth fruit of justification is joy, even in the midst of hardship and difficulty and trial. Paul says we too can rejoice when we run into problems and trials. Again, we're talking about the benefits of justification. Now, I can imagine the people who are objecting to Paul's message of grace, uh, what they would be thinking now and what questions they would have. And one of the questions they would have is, how can Paul talk about the Christian's peace with God when at the same time they are facing all sorts of difficulties and hardships in life? They're facing illness and persecutions and difficulties of all kinds. And Paul, in his writings, has a couple answers to this. And one that we'll come to later in the book, he says that sufferings don't overthrow the blessings we have been given. In other words, the blessings we have are so much greater than the sufferings we're experiencing that they don't even compare. But even more than that, he says the sufferings themselves can be occasions for joy. Secondly, let me just touch on those two real quick here, first of all. First of all, our sufferings are not greater than our blessings. Because of our relationship with God, there is a joy that can be had even in the midst of trials for every human being is at some point they're going to experience these difficulties and hardships in life. We live in a fallen planet. We live in a world where we're constantly hearing about new atrocities all the time, and everywhere you look, you see pain and suffering. People are experiencing disappointments and difficulties and illness and persecution, and, and nobody escapes. Nobody here is going to get through life unscathed. We, we all have severe hurts at some point in our lives. And, and some of you are hurting right now. You're hurting in ways that maybe nobody around you fully understands. 
but no loss in life is greater than the riches that you have prepared for you in heaven. Paul says later in this book, in chapter 8, he says, I consider our present sufferings aren't even worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed. If you have a weight scale, the weight of our pain and suffering in this life doesn't even compare with the glory that we will have one day with Christ. But in this passage, Paul's saying something a little different than that. He's saying that in our sufferings themselves, there is a reason to rejoice. Our suffering themselves in some way are blessings. Rejoicing is more than just tolerating. Rejoicing is more than just hanging in there. Rejoicing is more than just not grumbling. Rejoicing is more than just stoically accepting. Rejoicing is more than just resigning to pain. It is delighting in even the difficulties you face in life. Now, Paul's not saying we rejoice because we love pain, nor is he saying that we rejoice as if we don't have any trials and act like we don't, as if denial is what God wants from us. But he's saying that we have reason to rejoice even in our trials. You know, where's this strange doctrine come from? Has Paul kind of flipped? Who finds joy in their sorrows? You know, think, think of the things that have caused you pain this last year. Can you rejoice in those trials? And if so, how? Well, we rejoice not just because of the troubles themselves. We rejoice because we know that our sufferings will have beneficial results in our lives. There's a song by Shane and Shane entitled, Though You Slay Me. And three minutes, and in one version of it, at three minutes and 22 seconds into the song, on this video, he plays an excerpt from John Piper. And John Piper is talking about suffering. And he says this, he says, not only is all of your affliction momentary, not only is all of your fiction, affliction light in comparison to eternity and the glory there, not only is that true of your affliction, but all of it is totally meaningful. Every millisecond of your pain from, the fallen from your fallen nature or fallen man, every millisecond of your misery in the path of obedience is producing a peculiar glory you will get because of it. He says, I don't care if it's cancer or criticism. I don't care if it's slander or sickness. It isn't meaningless. It's doing something. It's not meaningless. Of course you can't see what it's doing. Don't look at what is seen. When your mom dies, when your child dies, when you get cancer at 40, when a car careens onto a sidewalk and takes someone you love out, don't say that's meaningless. <laughs> 
It's not. It's working for you an eternal weight of glory. And he says, so don't lose heart, but take these truths and day by day focus on them and preach them to yourself every morning. Get alone with God and preach his word into your mind until your heart sings with confidence that you are new and you are cared for. A Christian, people, is not a stoic who faces suffering by just gritting their teeth. Christians look through the suffering to its benefits and they see the opportunities their trials have for growth and they believe that their suffering is not for nothing. And so Paul says, we can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials for we know that they will help us develop endurance and endurance develops strength of character and in character strengthens our confidence in the hope of salvation and this too will not lead to disappointment for we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us his Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for sinners. And so Suffering develops endurance and endurance character and character hope. In other words, as believers, we know that God can turn the tables on our suffering and he can turn even the worst things that happen to us into something that is good for us. Vance Havner in his book, It's Toward Toward Evening, tells the true story of a small town in Alabama that made its living entirely from growing cotton. He said it wasn't a great living, but it was a living. But calamity struck when the boll weevil invaded the community. And it threatened to ruin everyone's livelihood. He says, as it turned out, the farmers were first forced to switch to peanuts and other crops that eventually brought them much greater return than they would have ever had with cotton. And ultimately, that which seemed to be a disaster became the basis for undreamed prosperity. To register their appreciation, they erected a monument to the boll weevil. (laughs) And it's there to this day in this small southern town, that monument stands in the middle of Main Street. He says this, he says, we all have bull weevil experiences in life. We have financial reversals, professional failures, relational disappointments, psychological or physical hurts. But these trials can bump us out of our old ways and force us to find new ways to live and many tragedies can be turned to triumphs through the Lord. Again, what I said earlier is true, our suffering is never for nothing. The goal in life is not to find pleasure or to avoid pain, but to gain maturity. And God allows suffering to strengthen us and to grow us. This year I've spent a year with Puritan writers in my devotions. There's a Puritan, there's a book of excerpts from Puritan writers. And this past week I, I read a devotional by John Flavel who said this. He said, God would rather our hearts be heavy under adversity than careless under prosperity. God would rather our hearts be heavy under adversity than careless under prosperity. 
He says his choice saints have faced some of the sharpest sufferings. And those who now shine like stars are those who have been walked over as though they were dung on earth. He asks, you know, if it's true that God is so inclined toward mercy, why has he hedged his own people in by his providence in a suffering path? And Flavel in this devotional gives five reasons that he sees for suffering. The first reason he gives is that God wants to show his people the glory of who he is. He wants to manifest his power and their support and escape and deliverance. And sometimes he allows people to suffer so he can reveal who he is. Another reason is that he wants to advance people's happiness. And he does this, he says, by purging them of their corruptions because their corruptions are what are really making them unhappy and proving the sincerity of their faith because it's a sincere faith that carries you through difficult times. A third reason he gives is he wants the church to be free of hypocrites. He says, affliction is a furnace that separates the dross from pure gold. Multitudes of hypocrites like flies on a hot summer day are generated by a church's prosperity. But winter weather kills them. <laughs> I heard of somebody this past week here in our town who, who said they're, they're, they're contemplating giving up on God because they're suffering in their life. And they wonder if he really exists. A fourth reason he gives is suffering endears family members to one another. You know, those who have suffered in similar ways are drawn to each other and they have a, a relationship that goes deeper than those who haven't suffered can understand. And when you suffer in one area of your life and you meet somebody else who's suffered in that same area, you are, you're drawn to each other. And finally, and this is probably the greatest reason, he says suffering drives us deeper into God. At no time do we pray more earnestly than when we suffer. He says, during times of prosperity, we tend to forget and grow complacent with God, but there is a fervency in our prayers during times of suffering. In our text, Paul says that, you know, suffering produces endurance. Endurance is strength. It's, it, it, it's what allows you to keep going when you're worn out. You're made stronger as you prepare for, for life. Experience shows that suffering can produce endurance. Ask any cross-country runner who punishes their bodies so that when race day comes, they can run without giving up because they've built up their strength. Suffering does that for us. Secondly, he says, Endurance produces tested character. You know, when, when Christians experience trials that demand perseverance, that perseverance in turn produces proven character. The example could be shared of a sports team new to the playoffs. Sometimes they don't play as well as a team that's been there before because a tested team has had previous playoff experience and they're more prepared. They're more likely to perform better because they've been there before. Rabbi Abraham Herschel says of Job, the faith like Job's cannot be shaken because it's the result of already having been shaken. <laughs> 
and endurance and tested character and character produces hope. We know that when we see God working in us, developing us, changing us, we know that he who began a good work in us will see it through to completion. So these verses tell us that our trials have a purpose and through them God causes us to grow. And so we find purpose in our suffering because it's a path to spiritual maturity. Ken Hughes says, you can ask any of the saints that have gone on before us, and they all agree. Ask Abraham, Abraham, and he'll direct your attention to the moment he was told to take his son Isaac and offer him as a sacrifice on Mount Moriah. And the trauma this was for him, but how he came out with a bigger vision of God. Jacob will tell you about the day he was forced to flee from home and was in the wilderness alone, not knowing what his future held for him, and he made a stone his pillow. Joseph will tell you about the dark day that he was in dungeon, in a dungeon. Moses will remind you of all the trials he went through with Pharaoh. David was always singing songs in the night. Peter will always remember his denial of Christ, and John of of Patmos, he'll remember his time on Patmos when he was exiled and alone, and Jesus, the cross. The Bible tells us that God wants to transform us into the image of his son, and he uses the tribulations we encounter to promote that end. As one person put it, we are like nails, and the more we're hit, the more deeply we are driven into God. Most of us live our Christian lives in a rather thoughtless manner. We aimlessly kind of meander through life, not thinking much seriously about growth, thinking we've already mastered what's important to master, thinking we already know what we need to know and that we will react the right way when we have to. In other words, we have this kind of smug view of ourselves, that is, until we're confronted with a trial and then suddenly we realize how much more we still need to grow. And Christian suffering is always has a purpose. If God allows suffering in the lives of his children, it's always for a profitable end. And that's why we can rejoice in our tribulations. We rejoice not in the discomforts themselves, but in the eventual results of those discomforts. I'm not going to preach on the last point here because our time's up. Let me, I'll just read the headline, the, the, the point there and the verse, and that is a fifth benefit is God's love is poured out into our hearts. He says in verse five, and this hope we will not lead to disappointment for we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with love. This too is a benefit of our justification. But when you look back over this list, you begin to realize that These things we have received from God by being made right with God are truly things to be thankful for. We're given peace with God. We're given access to God. We have hope in a future blessing with God, joy in our trials, and the love of God is being poured out right now on his children, all these are ours when we're made right with God.
Let's bow our heads and close your eyes. And If you haven't experienced this in your life yet, don't leave this place this morning without asking God to be for you what you need and trusting him to forgive your sins and accept him as your son. If I had time, I'll go on that last point. It ends with a climax really talking about how we are friends with God. And I just think about that. What does that mean that we are friends with you, God? What an incredible gift you've given to us. Lord, I pray that we would leave here, those of us who have really truly asked you into our hearts, leave here with hearts full of gratitude, not taking any of these gifts for granted, but giving praise to you each day this week as we contemplate the wonderful benefits of our justification in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We hope you are blessed by the message today. Follow us on social media to keep up to date with church news and events.